Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. My name is Phil Linskog. I'm the high school pastor here at Wyzetta. And we are currently on the second week of our series in the gospel. There is good news. And this morning I'm going to be talking about what did the gospel mean then? What did it mean for a first century world? George started us off last week by doing an incredible job at looking at that the gospel is just simply good news. What was the good news that Jesus was proclaiming? That the kingdom of God is here. Right here with us at this very moment. So this morning we're going to be exploring what does it mean to have the kingdom here? What did it mean for the first century world and what does it mean for us? So let's pray and then we'll get in. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come together and worship. Father, we ask um, any church in the West Metro today that is preaching the kingdom, that is preaching Christ resurrected, uh, that you are with them along with us this morning. Bless them, bless this time. And we, Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence here in this room. Amen. So I want to lay, a road, lay out a roadmap for us so that you all can be tracking with where we're going this morning. We have three major areas. First, I want to look at the difference that I see between a salvation culture and a kingdom culture and what each of those have to offer for us. I then want to do a 50,000-foot flyover of both the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. And that's going to show us the foundation of why Jesus had to come as a king and why him establishing, establishing the kingdom of God here on earth is so important. And then we're going to look at one of the greatest aspects of this kingdom idea and this kingdom lens, and it's this idea of citizenship and what it, the privilege it is to be citizens of this kingdom. And we're going to be looking at Philippians 1.27 through 2.11 and all of that. Sound good? Good. All right. I'm a participatory speaker. The students know that. It's okay to respond. All right? Okay, here we go. So one of the most significant things and important gifts that the church has ever given the world is evangelicalism. Its emphasis on being born again has been transformational in our world. It is one of the greatest themes that is woven throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and in almost every single sermon in the book of Acts. Personal faith is something so integral to the New Testament that it is both necessary and non-negotiable. It doesn't work for spectators. We absolutely have to participate in order for the transforming power of Holy Spirit to move through us. However, we've gotten to this point in Christianity where we can very easily present salvation without presenting the kingdom of God. We can present salvation completely removed from this kingdom idea. We focus at times only on getting a decision from someone, making sure that they get to heaven, and then we don't do much else with them. Now we may look at ourselves and say, no, we don't do that, like we're really good at this and that, but sometimes we're just driven by getting a decision from someone. And we leave out this entire part of faith that is the kingdom of God. 
And I think in that, we create a salvation culture instead of a kingdom culture. And a salvation culture, I would propose, only addresses the person's soul and sin. Or as Dallas Willard says, Gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming humankind. They foster vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins, but nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. Or as he says elsewhere, if we get the right barcode, if we say the right things, make the right confession, have the right experience, and make the right decision, when we die, God scans the barcode, the lights go off, and we will be safe. I think that's what happens when we remove salvation from the kingdom. Now, a kingdom culture, which includes salvation, I want to be very clear on that. It approaches things more holistically. And we can get a little nervous in the evangelical world when people start throwing out the word word, holistic. But it's okay. Because we need to address more than the soul and the sin. Or as N.T. Wright says, it is about whole human beings, not merely souls. It is about the present, not simply the future. And it is about what God does through us not merely what God does in and for us. Our view of faith, of the gospel, needs to be through this kingdom lens, through this lens of the kingdom of God. It is what Jesus preached as good news. And George said it perfectly last week. The kingdom of God, God's power and presence and reign has now become available to ordinary human beings. It is in his person that has now come to earth with us. You can live in it if you want. You can walk right in. Anybody can. That's Jesus' gospel. And it's the only gospel that he ever preached. So as we look at this lens of kingdom, I want us to take that and look at the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. Because what I think we'll find is that when we have that lens, we really see the foundation of why Jesus needed to come, especially as a king. If you remove the Old Testament, you remove the need for Jesus. If you remove the story of Israel, then you don't have the foundation of why Jesus truly needed to come. So there's this book um, called The King Jesus Gospel. It's by a guy named Scott McKnight. At the very end of his book, He goes through about four or five pages that lays out extremely beautifully, well-written, the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. I'm going to share a little bit of that this morning. It's an abridged version. And there's just two words I want to define for us so we're all on the same page. The first one is icon, E-I-K-O-N. It's a Greek word. And it means the image of the Son of God into which true Christians are transformed um, it's likeness not only to the heavenly body, but also to the most holy and blessed state of mind which Christ possesses. All right? It's us being image bearers. And then usurp. And that simply means taking someone's power or property by force. Another way to say that would be sin or rebellion. And what we're going to see in this story, and the foundation that's going to lay for Jesus coming as a king and preaching that the kingdom of God is here, we'll see God offer to be with his people, for the king to walk amongst them, and to co-govern with them, 
and to have their identity in the citizenship of the kingdom of God. But we'll see each and every time that they'll eventually reject it. All right, here we go. 50,000 foot flyover of the story of Israel. Y'all ready? All right, thank you. He's my hype man. All right. In the beginning, God created everything we see and some things we cannot yet see. In the beginning, God turned what existed into a cosmic temple. God made two icons, Adam and Eve, and gave them one simple task, to govern the world on God's behalf. But Adam and Eve thought better and usurped God's prerogative. They rebelled the rule of God in this world and ruined their opportunity to govern as God's co-governors in Eden. For one dark moment, the icons acted the part of God. So God banished them from Eden and cast them into the world as we know it. God would have to find another way for his icons to co-govern the world with him. But sadly, as we see, all the descendants of Adam and Eve followed in their footsteps. He gave them the opportunity to correct the course, but we see with the Tower of Babel, it cascaded them into a nightmare of sin and rebellion that all but ruined their opportunity to co-govern with God. God chose another way of establishing his rule on earth. God chose Abraham and gave Israel the task of governing. God created a covenant between himself and Abraham and Israel, a covenant that transferred the governing assignment that he originally gave Adam and Eve and gave it to Abraham and Israel. As the original icons were to govern this world on God's behalf, so were Abraham and Israel. They were to co-govern and they were also to bless the nations. They did this well at times, and at other times they acted like usurpers and chose to do things their own way. The second arrangement wasn't working either. So then Israel asked for kings like other nations had. They really wanted that presence to be with them. And in God's own mysterious grace, he chose to grant and provide their kingly wish and made one of their kings David, the sort of king God wanted for them. This was the third form of governing on God's behalf. But one king after another, some of them good, some of them bad, governed God's people. But each, but each and every one of them proved to be sinful as well. So then God sent prophets to warn them that there was only one governor, one true king, one and only one God, and his name was Yahweh. So we see God attempted... Three times to co-govern with his people, to be with his people, to establish the priestly kingdom and give them the task of blessing the world. First with Adam and Eve, and then through Abraham and Israel, and then through kings like David. Each and every time they rebelled against God's reign. They wanted to do things their own way. God wanted to co-govern with them, to establish that priestly kingdom, but instead they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. Now this, now this is an extremely brief summary of the entire Old Testament, okay? I spent a full year, 8 a.m. classes, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's like the worst year of my life, 8 a.m. for Old Testament. That was tough. Um, I had a prof who just read straight off the PowerPoint, and he would bring his big book, and um, <clears throat> if the PowerPoint went out, he brought out transparencies. I went and found a projector and then taught, okay? Um, now this is super brief through the entire Old Testament, 
But if you continue to dig in with this kingdom lens, you'll see that this theme is woven through their entire history. So when we have an understanding of the history of Israel and their relationship with God the Father, it's going to help our foundational understanding of why Jesus coming as a king and establishing his kingdom here on earth is so important. So let's look at that story of Jesus. And let's look at how him coming as a king fulfills not only their story, but our story. God sent Israel Jesus. But even though Jesus did exactly what God told him to do, neither Israel nor Gentiles that were surrounding Israel accepted him as Messiah. Though Jesus was a man known to do good wherever he went, and though he healed and he rescued people from all sorts of problems, and though he brought people to the table who were forgiven and saved and healed and made new again, who were turned from usurper and sinner to lovers, descendants, both Roman and Jewish, decided they'd be better off putting him to death. But what the sinners didn't realize was that Jesus was actually entering into their sin and the death they deserved for their sins. He was dying their death. He was shouldering their sin and punishment due due to their sin. And he was absorbing the just wrath of God against all sin. What they didn't know was that God could reverse their sin and rebellion and reverse their death and start all over again. What they didn't know was that this way of dying as a servant was to become the only true way of living and making peace in this world. What they didn't know was that the cross was the crown and that power comes only when it is surrendered. They didn't know this. No one did. Not even his closest followers. What they didn't know was that they had met their match in King Jesus who is about to usher in an alternative kingdom. And in that kingdom, and in Jesus, who was the king, we finally had the king that this earth needed. He was exalted to reign over the world. He summoned all people to accept his forgiving, kindly, peaceful, gracious, and transforming rule. If people would just turn to him, they would be forgiven from their sin and their rebellion, and all of it would be forgotten. To create this new society, this new kingdom society, Jesus sent his people, the Holy Spirit, to empower them and transform them from sinners into servants of God's love, his peace, his justice, and his holiness. The Holy Spirit could transform them into the visible likeness of Jesus. And as Christ-like icons, they were assigned to rule on God's behalf in this this world. And they did that by looking at the story of Jesus, living out that story as their own, and by spreading the good news of that story. This was an alternative politics and the right way to govern the the world on God's behalf, by loving others with everything we've got. That's from, from Scott McKnight's book, The King Jesus Gospel. And for me, this is the good news. If someone were to ask me, Phil, what is the gospel? This is where I would start. It it requires investment from us. It requires that we actually have to have more than just a quick conversation with someone. But it's a story. 
and I'd share with them a story where the God of all creation sends Jesus not only to meet creation in their sin, but to overcome that sin in a manner that no one expected. A story where Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection initiates a new kingdom. A kingdom where citizenship comes only through the resurrected Christ. And a kingdom that focuses on the whole person, not just merely souls. Where we don't look at people as statistics. A kingdom that is all about the here and now, not escaping this earth so that we can get to heaven. Look at the Lord's Prayer. The one place that Jesus, is, Jesus teaches us how to pray. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's our job to establish that kingdom here on earth. And it's a kingdom that focuses on what God does through us. Not merely what God does in and for us. It is about finding our identity and our purpose in our citizenship of that kingdom. It's about us co-governing with God in this world to bring forth his kingdom so that we can bless the world. There is a kingdom where the king lives right with us. That's such a difficult concept for us to grasp, but it wouldn't have been for the Israelites. They had God's presence with them, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, and now Everyone has access to this kingdom through Jesus. Everyone has access to his presence. And through Holy Spirit, we are in the presence of the king wherever we go. Because we are his icons, we are his image bearers. And we are sealed with Holy Spirit. And that, that for me is just simply incredible. To know that we are in the presence of the king right now. That we are in his kingdom right now. And in this kingdom, if we choose to be citizens of it, it is marked by God's love, peace, justice, and holiness. We get to co-govern with God. The same task that was given to Adam and Eve so that we can bless the nations and love others with everything we've got. And when we focus just on salvation, I feel like we have a tendency to miss all of this idea of the kingdom of God and all that has to offer for us and through us and in us. Or as Dallas Willard said, it fosters vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins and nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. So what does this have to do with you and I? I think it starts off by saying that's our story too. We can identify with Israel. We can identify with rebelling against God's reign. But we also identify with the story of Jesus. That we can be citizens of the kingdom that he came here to establish. We need to look at the entirety of the good news. The entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament. And live that story out as our own. It's about that idea of citizenship. And what we don't necessarily understand when it comes to citizenship... um, is that in the first century, it carried an incredible amount of weight wherever you went. To be worthy of citizenship meant that you'd bring honor rather than shame to your city, to your king, and to your traditions. Take a look back at the very beginning of the book of John. 
when Jesus is out and he's getting disciples, Nathaniel, who's hanging out, the disciples who had already talked to Jesus go out and find him, and they say, hey, there's this guy from Nazareth. And what's his response when he hears that? Can anything good come from Nazareth? There is a reputation of your citizenship, and it went before you. And the reason I want to look at, for the remainder of our morning, Philippians 1.27 through 2.11, is because it takes on this idea of citizenship. And what we miss sometimes, because our Bible is broken up in chapters and verses, is that 127 through 211 is one fluid thought. Most commonly translated, the first word of chapter 2 is therefore. Okay? So when Paul is, is writing and he's saying therefore, he's saying everything I just said. Okay? Take everything I just said and we're going to apply it to what I'm about to say. So it's one fluid thought. And it takes on this idea of citizenship in two ways. In verses 27 through 30, Paul calls the church and us to a place where our public behavior represents the gospel of the king. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the kingdom of God is here. So he's saying your public behavior, the way we act, and I'd say public and private, right? Our attitudes in all things, our behavior in all things needs to be a representation of our citizenship in this new kingdom. And then verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it lays the foundation of what that public behavior looks like by comparing to what Christ did, and then Paul solidifies Christ's place at the head of this kingdom. So I'm going to be reading, um, so I quoted a guy, N.T. Wright, a little bit earlier. Um, he is one of the world's uh, leading New Testament theologians, and he and his team have gone through and translated the entire New Testament Um, And so I'm going to be reading from his translation today uh, in verses, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. It's up on the screen behind me. All right. The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. That way, whether I do come and see you or whether I remain elsewhere, the news that I get about you will indicate that you are standing firm with a single spirit, struggling, struggling side by side with one intent for the faith of the gospel, and not letting your opponents intimidate you in any way. This is a sign from God, one that signifies their destruction, but your salvation. Yes, God has granted you uh, that on behalf of the king, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You are engaged in the same struggle with which you once watched me go through, and as you now hear, I'm still going through. So why is Paul calling out the public behavior of the church? Why is he saying your public behavior must match that of the good news, of the kingdom of God? Because through Christ, they were now citizens of this new kingdom, where Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So their behavior needed to be shaped by King Jesus and not by the culture of Rome. Their citizenship, they took it so seriously. And Paul is saying, now that we have this kingdom of God, this is what your citizenship needs to look like. Their citizenship was a core piece of their identity. Our citizenship in this kingdom of God needs to be at the core of our identity. And if our citizenship is in that kingdom... 
And if we, if we proclaim Christ resurrected, then our behavior must be shaped by King Jesus. Not by consumerism, not by nationalism, and not by individualism. And for those who are in despair around this election, I'm just going to have real talk real quick, okay? And those who are afraid of waking up the morning of November 9th, I have good news. Jesus will still be king, okay? Jesus will still be sitting as a king of this kingdom. And our citizenship will still be in the kingdom of God. But if it is, if, if we are citizens, then it does come with this. That after all this, right, our behavior still needs to be shaped by King Jesus. So what does this behavior look like? What, is, what are the qualifications for citizenship? What does it mean and what does it look like to be shaped by this king? Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how to do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. This is how you should think among yourselves. With the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah, the King, Jesus, who, though in God's form, did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of humans and then having human appearance. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Yes, even death of the cross. To possess the mind that Paul is calling the Philippians and us to have involves not merely attitudes but actions and actions of a rather radical sort. Just as Christ chose between self-interest and self-emptying or self-humbling, so too we must also choose between selfish ambition and high regard for others, between empty self-glory and humility, and between our own interests or the interests of others. In other words, Christ's death was not only an act of love, but also an act of voluntary obedience. We are called to that very voluntary obedience as citizens of this new kingdom, an obedience that is marked by humility, love, peace, justice, and holiness. And the closing verses, verses 9, 10, and 11. Now see, verses, verses 6 through 11, you notice in scripture, uh, most translations, they indent it because he's quoting uh, a poem or a hymn that they would have known. And what he was doing, he was just showing the Israelites this, what you have, this poem, this hymn that you would have known is talking about Jesus. 
And so what he does in verses 9, 10, and 11 is he transfers kingship upon to Jesus. And this would have been considered like blasphemous in its time. But it, it seats Jesus in the throne room, right? It seats Jesus king of this new kingdom. And it says this. So God has greatly exalted him. And to him in his favor has given the name which is over all names. That now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow on earth to and under earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is all, has, this all, all this has been an extremely fast flyover of the story of Israel. How the story of Jesus completes that story. And how we are able to participate in this new kingdom. It's been a lot. But I want to circle back to this idea of what would it have meant for the first century. And if there's one thing that you get away, that you take away from this, is that it would have been a new identity for them. Their citizenship in this new kingdom was at the core of who they were. People thought Jesus was going to come in and overthrow Caesar, but the beauty and grace of God the Father was that he established a kingdom here on earth, his own kingdom, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. A kingdom that will never fade, a kingdom that can never be taken down. And he calls us, just like we see Paul calling the Philippians, to a high standard as citizens of that kingdom. But he doesn't call us to it without knowing the cost himself. So what does this look like in modern day? In our remaining time, I want to share a story of my friends Scott and Johanna Watkins, who I've known for about 10 years. And there's no better story that I have ever come across that shows people in the midst of suffering continue to strive towards the radical nature of citizenship and embody Philippians 2. About four or five years ago, Johanna started having what seemed to be some food allergies, some digestive problems. In that time, she moved up from Rochester, which is where I knew her from, and started working at Hope Academy, a private Christian academy in South Minneapolis as a second grade teacher. There, she met her husband, Scott, who was also a second grade teacher, and they got married a couple of years later. As time progressed, and as a young married couple, they began battling a life-threatening illness, which before diagnosis, they had never even heard of. Johanna has a severe, progressive case of mast cell disease, which causes her body to develop life-threatening anaphylactic reactions to just about anything. She has a current list of over 100 allergies, including many foods, scents, and various environmental triggers. She has experienced anaphylaxis and has been hospitalized more times than they care to count. And while they thought their lives couldn't get any trickier this past spring, she began to develop allergic reactions to the natural chemicals and body odors of people. She literally became allergic to people. And... At this moment, only her three siblings can be in her presence without sending her into anaphylaxis. Which means her husband, 
can't be in the same room with her without the risk of setting her off. There's no known cure for this disease and this treatment is a complicated puzzle. They've been receiving fantastic care from Dr. Lawrence Afrina of the U of M who happens to be one of the world's leading experts on this disease. And over the last two years, they've gone through various treatments, medications, and chemo. Unfortunately, nothing has been able to rein her broken body in. At that same time, she was developing allergic reactions to people they needed to move. And they were able to set up a temporary home in the house of some friends. And in order to stay alive, Johanna has been isolated to an upstairs bedroom fitted with an airlock and special air filters. The family they live with has given up all in-home cooking and scented household products, which talk about embodying humility and thinking about others first. So on days like today, they're cooking breakfast outside, they're cooking lunch outside, dinner outside, and they're eating outside. And Scott has been living in a basement bedroom. And due to the life-threatening nature of Johanna's illness and her unknown prognosis, it became clear this past summer that they were in need, in a more, in a, they were in need of a safer, more permanent home. They purchased a house on August 1st, and the, start, and the clock started. To make the home fully safe for her and a place where others can take care of her, it needed to include three separate areas. A living space for Johanna that contains a one-of-a-kind air filtration system, an allergen-free kitchen utilized only for preparing her food, and then a living space for Scott. All on the salary of a second-grade teacher at a private academy in South Minneapolis. They've been able to raise over $90,000 from people who have found their case, found their story, and wanted to donate. But this house project has been a lot more intense than they had expected. During this entire process, Scott, who is extremely knowledgeable of how to do house projects and how to do all this stuff and could do majority of the stuff himself or help out with it, hasn't been able to. He's been sidelined because him being around even just dust of the construction and all that kind of things, all those things, could interact with Johanna's food, which he prepares. He takes about two hours every night to prepare her food. So he's had to rely on the help of others during this entire project over the last three months. And our church, our caring ministry, our prayer ministry, our middle school students, our high school students, graduated students, and hammers of hope have had the privilege to come alongside Scott and Johanna these past couple months to help with these house projects. I spent a majority of my weekends in August and September down there with students. And if you ask any of the students who I brought down and had the chance to meet Scott, they would tell you that King Jesus means so much more than just salvation. That King Jesus is so much more than just getting to heaven when he dies. It's a way of life. It's an identity. And Scott views himself and his wife and their entire situation through that lens, through their identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
And I've been able to watch as the entirety of Philippians 1.27 through 2.11 has unfolded in front of my eyes the last three months. I have watched other people sacrifice and stand with Scott and Johanna in their suffering. Talk about her siblings. Two of them live up here, one of them lives down in Rochester, and they're the only ones in the last six months who can be in the room with her. I've watched Scott embody Philippians 2.3. That says, never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. And I have had countless conversations with Johanna, whether via text or email or phone, where she is genuinely interested in my life and what I am doing. And she's not... She's not focused on the illness around her. She is present with me. She has a joy that transcends her suffering. Even in their situation, they are focused on other people. Their citizenship carries an incredible amount of weight in bringing glory to God. And if we think back about this whole idea of kingdom... And what does it mean as being citizens? And what does it mean to co-govern? And what does it mean to bless this world and bless other people? I want to share with you what Johanna had texted me when I told her that I was going to share their story. She She had no idea what I was talking about. She had no idea my passage or anything. I just said, hey, I'm going to share your story when I preach on the 30th. And this is what she said. I'm honored that you'd share our story. I hope it blesses people and brings more glory to God. When we leave out this idea of citizenship and when we leave out this idea of the kingdom, we miss our true calling of being able to co-govern with God in this world. To be citizens of this kingdom. To view our job as blessing this world. Our job is not just to sit here on earth and endure it until we die and go to heaven. If that's all Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection offered us, I'm out. It is about blessing people. It is about in the midst of our suffering, finding joy, and standing with one another in that. Something that we're trying to do here more at YZ is create spaces to respond. Sometimes that's through music, sometimes that's through prayer, or like last week, George spent some time in silence. We don't want to miss opportunities to put into action the things we are talking about. It's our job as pastors to help cultivate spaces here where you can respond so that you can take that in the Monday through Saturday. And during a time of prayer with both Beth Moorhead and Andrew Habeisen, we came up with this idea of standing with Scott and Johanna in their suffering and in their citizenship by simply writing them a note this morning. In the back of the sanctuary down here, I just realized I didn't put tables up in the balcony, so I apologize. But in the the back of the sanctuary here on the, the main level, there are cards and there's notes and there's some pens And during our time of response, I'm going to show just a video of Scott and Johanna, and then we're going to have the worship team come up here, and they're going to lead us in a song. Ask the Lord 
if, he's want, if there's a scripture that he wants you to write down, or if there's a prayer, or maybe there's someone else in your life that you just need to write a note of encouragement. And this video was put together by Scott to show on their GoFundMe page of their journey through mast cell disease. And I want you to notice the joy that Johanna has. You'll see pain, you'll see grief, but you will see an incredible joy that is on her face. A joy that transcends suffering.